This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Vancouver Consumer this lovely Saturday. I'm Sterling Fox. In just a few moments, criminal defense lawyer Kyla Lee returns to our show, as she promised to do, with a look at our new world of legalized cannabis and the problems, or not, that have come along with it. In our next hour, John Carlson returns with lots more on Vancouver real estate and the 1% Realty story. But first, here are some of the top consumer stories we're following this week. Canada Mortgage and Housing says the country country's real estate market is expected to moderate over the next couple of years as the growth in housing prices is expected to slow to more in line with economic fundamentals. Remember those? It's in its 2018 housing market outlook this week, the National Housing Agency projects housing starts and sales are both expected to decline in 2019 and 2020. CMHC says it expects economic indicators like income and employment to continue to help support demand for housing starts, but these fundamentals are also anticipated to slow down to a more sustainable pace. Rising mortgage rates are also expected to affect housing demand and the resale market. Now, by 2020, CMHC anticipates demand will continue to shift towards relatively less expensive housing options. Remember those? like apartment condominiums versus higher-end single-detached homes. In our next hour, Vancouver area realtor John Carlson will be here, and I'm looking forward to his take on this new housing forecast, one of a couple out this week. The Canada Revenue Agency says, now listen to this, so many of us are getting calls from scammers pretending to be tax enforcers that real tax agents are having trouble reaching Canadians. The CRA and the Mounties said in a briefing in Ottawa on Wednesday that they're trying to crack down on call centers loaded with fraudsters who phone Canadians, say we owe back taxes, and threaten we better pay the money back. And, uh, well, you know, we've warned you about these fraudsters right here. The threats, the threats rather, sometimes are pretty intense. Now, some people are so used to receiving the fraudulent calls, we average three or four a week in our house. Some, some, uh, we're so getting so accustomed to these calls that we're beginning to assume any communication from the tax collection agency is bogus. So this week, they had to trot out a general, a director general, rather, from the tax agency to repeat that CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, will never call or leave voicemails using aggressive language or threatening arrest. Now, agents will sometimes phone when they're looking for more information or if someone owes taxes or money to a government program. But the CRA says it will never demand immediate payment, especially via e-transfer or Bitcoin, or communicate via text message. The Mounties say newcomers to Canada, especially people who don't speak English or French, can be particularly vulnerable. The B.C. government announced this week it's reducing speed limits on some of our highways, dropping them from 120 kilometers per hour to at least 110 or lower. The government says it's been studying three years of crash data from ICBC and has concluded, rather, a reduction on some roads is just plain smart. The most affected highway locally will be the Sea to Sky, where there aren't any 120 speed zones, but there are several spots, including Horseshoe Bay to Squamish, where the limit will be dropped by 
by 10 clicks per hour. Interestingly, the Coquihalla, especially the Okanagan connector and the route up to Kamloops, won't see any reductions and speeds will stay in some places at 120. Now, the Island Highway, some of Highway 1 through the Fraser Valley, and parts of the Hope Princeton will also see speed limit reductions. Well, last night's Lotto Max prize was 50 million bucks, and there were no winners. There were also six Max Million prizes offered, and three of those were won. Next Friday's Lotto Max draw will likely be for $55 million. Now, new from the lottery people this week is that Lotto Max will now allow, allow rather the main jackpots to grow to $70 million, which is a new Canadian lottery high. And they will also be adding in Tuesday draws beginning next May, which will very likely see jackpots grow even faster than now. The cost will be the same, 5 bucks for 3 sets of numbers. The extra is still a buck to add on. Those max millions will also continue to be added in once jackpots get past 50 million and there will be two new categories to win as well. May 14th next year will be the first Tuesday draw date. Oh, and the odds of winning the big one on Lotto Max? One in 33,295,000. Good luck. Oh, and great news from the Vancouver Art Gallery at its annual general meeting this week. They've had a terrific year. Over 600,000 visitors this year, and that's up over 100,000 from the previous year. So the gallery, obviously, quite taken by this, calling it a landmark year, and its revenues were up over a million dollars more than expected. Memberships are also up, and so was the number of pieces the gallery acquired Acquired this year, too. Now, the gallery is still, of course, working towards building that new $350 million landmark building at West Georgia and Canby that would double its space. A massive project. Those are some more of the week's top consumer stories. We'll have a, a few more for you later in this hour and lots more coming up next hour. Coming up in just a few moments, Vancouver criminal defense lawyer Kyla Lee is back on Vancouver Consumer to take your calls and talk about, well, life with cannabis legalization. I'm Sterling Fox. You're with Welcome back to the program. Sterling Fox with you in the sunshine on this Saturday afternoon, a lovely November weekend. Kyla Lee is a Vancouver defense lawyer, criminal defense lawyer with the Acumen Law Corporation, a much-traveled legal person. Last time Kyla was with us, she had joined us from Calgary, where she was speaking to a conference of defense lawyers. She's back with us this afternoon, honoring a pledge to return once the law became the law, and joins us today from San Francisco. Francisco. Kyla Lee, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Sterling. Oh, it's a pleasure. So what are you up to in San Francisco? Is this business or pleasure? It's business. I'm at the California DUI Lawyers Association seminar. Okay. Now, California has, of course, legalized cannabis as we have in Canada. Is it as complete a legalization as it ours as is ours? I think it's more complete than ours. They have uh, legalized edibles. They have uh, a far more comprehensive system for dispensaries and access. Uh, I, I checked on Google Maps, um, and there were within where I am right now about 15 different places you could purchase cannabis. 
not the case right now in British Columbia. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Now, the story was uh, just a few days ago that there was a, a pot shop, a dispensary in Kimberley, which received a license, uh, presumably from the provincial government. Uh, this had operated illegally before being granted its license. Uh, last time I checked, and you would know the numbers better, uh, there were 53 dispensaries in the city of Vancouver before legalization, and yet none of them have received a license, to the best of my knowledge. So what the heck's going on, Kyla? Well, a lot of them have shut their doors in anticipation of getting licenses while their applications are being processed, and there are a significant group of dispensaries in Vancouver that are continuing to operate right. and that are refusing to participate in the licensing process um, as sort of as a protest against the, the restrictive nature of legalization. Okay, now I, I would assume. Now I also read a story where a one uh, a pot shop, and I can't remember where it was, but in British Columbia, was uh, is now uh, under the burden of uh, well over two hundred thousand dollars in back fines that they have been uh, apparently obliged by the courts to uh, pony up the dough for. Uh, are these stores in Vancouver that are flaunting the law in line for similar treatment at the hands of the courts? Not at this point in time, and part of the reason for that is the Vancouver Police Department is taking a bit of a hands-off approach to policing it. The second reason is that there is a case currently pending a decision from the B.C. Supreme Court where these dispensaries that have been operating in the illegal or the gray sphere, as lots of people like to call it, Mm -hmm. um, prior to legalization and continue to operate um, are, are... have launched a lawsuit, and it's been argued, and we're waiting on the decision um, because of the patient access to medicine issue. So I don't see the government fining these people who are operating these dispensaries while there's an ongoing court case about medical users and their access to medicine. Interesting. So when you speak to lawyers, uh, last time we chatted, you were in Alberta. This time you're in California, and you're one of the speakers, you're one of the presenters at these gatherings. And once you do your presentation, I asked you this about the Alberta thing, and I'm curious as to what the California people are asking you. When when you get to the Q&A portion after you've said your piece and they get to ask questions of you, what do they want to know most? A lot of people really want to know about the enforcement of, uh, of cannabis-impaired driving, and in particular in Canada, our, our use of the saliva testing equipment, because that's not something that they use as much in the United States as sort of the media has been um, talking about in Canada. Of course, as you know, uh, Sterling, the, the Drug or Drug Test 5000 didn't get rave reviews from right. the public or from the police. Mm-hmm. It's just not in use, really, in British Columbia at all. So I don't know how to tell them. <laughs> so what do they have? What do they use in, in California, for example, when they pull you over and you're suspected of being uh, impaired by cannabis? What device do they test you with or how do they go about uh, certifying that uh, at the roadside in California? There are some pilot projects right now in California with uh, the roadside breathalyzers for marijuana, but one of the biggest things that they're using all across the United States, and in particular in the states with legalization, is the drug recognition evaluation program. The, I'm sorry, your, your phone got kind of squeaky there for a second. What kind of recognition program, Kyla? 
drug recognition evaluation program. Oh, the we D- have this in Canada. Right, well. the DRE yeah. thing. And, and uh, it's interesting, I, I ran into, I was had, having coffee with John McComb a couple of days ago. We ran into uh, former uh, Justice Wally Opal, who was having coffee at the same place, at the next table, with a group of former police officers. And they were talking about how the creation of this new drug recognition expert category is really um, sapping their resources because people have to be sent away to take the test, which is usually about uh, the course, which is about two weeks in length. And it really is quite, quite demanding on their, their resources for boots on the street, so to speak. And yet they recognize the need to have them, uh, but they're, uh, they're struggling with producing the number of drug recognition experts on the street that they're supposed to have. It is a big problem, and especially for more remote communities where you have only a handful of police officers ordinarily, to send somebody out to get that training means that there is one less person to com- uh, to police the regular community issues that arise, such right. as sort of domestic disputes and, and uh, petty theft, things like that. Okay, let's talk about the uh, the first ticket, as I understand it, handed out uh, subsequent to cannabis legalization, at least in British Columbia, uh, for a moving violation, you might call it. You're the lawyer. You would know the terminology. There's a guy in West Van got a ticket for about 230 bucks because he was pulled over and he had a pipe with uh, marijuana in it. Now, he wasn't seen smoking it or anything, uh, but uh, it was uh, paraphernalia uh, under the old terms uh, right on the dashboard, and that netted him a fine of 200 and some odd dollars. So what is the law regarding carrying in a vehicle, Kyla? It's very simple. If it's sealed and in its original packaging that's never been opened, you can have it in your vehicle. Okay. If it is opened and uh, you want to transport it, you have to have it out of sight and out of reach. So put it in the trunk, put it in a bag and put the bag in the back seat. And uh, if it's a plant, you can't have more than four plants and they can't be budding or flowering. So having a pipe with cannabis in it on the dash is an invitation to the police to ticket you. I should think so. And all this fellow had to do was just not have it visible and probably would have uh, worked his way right through the pullover, wouldn't he? Pop it in the glove box and you have nothing to worry about because it's out of sight and out of reach to the driver. So it's similar to alcohol in that regard. You can uh, bring a bottle of wine home from the store or a case of beer and no problem at all as long as it remains unopened, right? Yes, and if it's opened, as long as it remains in a place that can't be seen and can't be reached by you while you're driving. You can have an open bottle of wine in your trunk, for example. That's not not an offense. Okay. So, again, no major uh, changes at all with respect to transporting uh, of this substance. Um, it's very, very, very similar to what we already completely understand with alcohol, right? Yes. Okay, well, let's talk about this this whole business of uh, the, the there's a place in New Brunswick, also a cannabis store. Uh, they got into problem with the locals down there, the gendarmes in, in New Brunswick, for advertising issues. Now, as I understand it, this is where you're going to be helpful to us. As I understand it, uh, you're, the industry is virtually forbidden to advertise its product to its customers. Is that the case? 
It is. Uh, you can't use any type of promotion or advertisement that depicts people, uh, that depicts people, that depicts them using cannabis, that depicts a caricature or, or a, like a cartoon or an animal to represent the product. You can't use any advertising that's designed to evoke a feeling. And as somebody, Sterling, who's been working in media as long as you have, I'm sure you know that a huge portion of advertising is evoking feelings in people so that you compel them to buy your product. You got that right. Um, so the entire advertising rules surrounding cannabis essentially prohibit anything other than saying, this is what product we have, this is the amount of THC and CBD, whether it's an indica or a sativa, and how much it costs. And that's about all you can do. And even then, you can only do that um, in a place that advertises that only to people over the age of majority. Interesting, because, you know, it, it's, it's, and I was just thinking about the, the parallel that we have with alcohol, given that we just talked about it with uh, booze and, and pot in terms of uh, in your car. Uh, alcohol, for example, if you watch alcohol commercials for wine or beer or spirits or whatever, you will never, ever, ever see a person drinking the product, but you sure see a lot of people having a great time. So uh, I wonder, what's the rationale behind no fun allowed? The rationale from the government perspective is that they don't want to make cannabis appealing to children. And they think that these advertisements that depict, you know, positive feelings associated to cannabis will persuade teenagers they should be trying it out. I don't think that advertising is having any influence on whether or not teenagers try cannabis. They've been using it since before cannabis was legal and before there was any advertising of it. Uh, advertising isn't going to influence them to do that. Do you suspect that down, down the road that this may, may loosen up a little bit, or is this probably going to be that that's the way it is? I think it will loosen up. Uh, it'll loosen up naturally over time, but also there are going to be a number of, of challenges launched. In fact, I was reading on Twitter today, Mark Emery, the famous cannabis activist, mm-hmm. is in Quebec right now selling cannabis advertising products in front of the police station with the goal of being arrested so he can challenge Quebec's advertising restrictions. And uh, are there restrictions? Do they vary from province to province? Or is this, com- is this completely federally regulated with respect to what you can and can't say about your product? There are federal regulations about what you can and can't say. And then it's open to the provinces to add more restrictions within their own Cannabis Control and Licensing Act. So Quebec has the most restrictive uh, um, rules around advertising. You can't even say the word cannabis in your advertising. You can't even say what you're selling, um, which makes it very difficult, obviously, for companies to to inform the public about their product. Interesting. I need to take a break for the news at the bottom of the hour, but just before we do, you're a criminal defense lawyer. You've been anticipating some phone calls since legalization has occurred. Have you had any? And uh, if so, uh, what sort of complaints or or cases are you already working on? Uh, I have. Interestingly, because of our location in Vancouver and and British Columbia, most of what we're getting is those tickets for uh, cannabis in vehicles okay. and 24-hour prohibitions for driving, so just short prohibitions for having a, a, the police believe you have a drug in your body. Oh, I see. And uh, that's pretty similar to what they do for alcohol under the same circumstances, isn't it? 
It is. And I think that's a deliberate decision by the police to to enforce the cannabis laws this way. Interesting stuff. Kyla, I'm going to get you to stand by, if you will. Kyla Lee, criminal defense lawyer with the Acumen Law Corporation, joining us on the line from San Francisco this afternoon. Let's open up the forms, uh, Ben and Andrew. 280-9898 with the obligatory 604 up front. 280-9898. Your calls, your questions on cannabis law when we come back on Vancouver Consumer. Welcome back to the program. Sterling Fox with you in the sunshine of a Saturday afternoon on Vancouver Consumer. Joined on the line from California, from San Francisco, specifically by Vancouver defense lawyer, criminal defense lawyer, Kyla Lee from the Acumen Law Corporation. Uh, Kyla, thanks for sticking around. It's uh, interesting. We were During the news, we were uh, just a couple of pot stories in there. And one of the things that we talked about, and we'll get to our phone calls in just a second, I wanted to, uh, you to address, because you're in California, where uh, they've just gone through this whole uh, process as well, and we've seen it next door in Washington State. The one problem that we seem to have commonly from Newfoundland and Labrador right to Vancouver Island is supply. Uh, there are stores in the country, across the country, that can't stay open because they don't have enough stuff to sell. Was that expected or is this just badly turned out? Well, Everybody who was advising the government in relation to what to expect said, look at all of our, you know, companions to the, to the South. They've experienced shortages after legalization. The government promised that there would not be a shortage of cannabis. And within a couple of days of legalization, we saw shortages. Sure so did. I think we all knew that it was going to happen. Um, and it's really disappointing that there are shortages to this degree because I know that it's affecting medical users getting access to their medicine. Um, but in British Columbia, we haven't seen any stores close. We only have one uh, government store and one uh, legal non-government store. And online sales continue, but there are a lot of products that are sold out. Absolutely. And of course, we have the uh, rotating uh, job action by the postal people, which of course is the conduit for many people, particularly medical users, Kyla. Yes, medical users, uh, unless they're relying on the dispensary system operating in the gray market, do rely on Canada Post. So this rotating job action has a significant impact on those people and also sort of supports the reason why um, no action is really being taken right now to shut down any of the dispensaries in Vancouver. Interesting stuff. Uh, let's go to the phones. We did open them just before the, the uh, news break, 604-280-9898. Bill in Richmond was first up. Thank you for waiting, Bill. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. Um, the device, uh, the, the machine that uh, checks for cannabis in your system, um, it, it's, it, it takes a, a sample of, of saliva, I believe. Correct. And, and now the cops have your DNA. What happens to that sample of DNA and what happens if I refuse Two really good questions. I've asked Kyla about the DNA part before because I'm real paranoid about that kind of stuff. Yeah. And Ky- <laughs> Kyla, there is no directive, as I understand it, that says once your DNA sample has been taken by the roadside officer for that test in that Drager machine, uh, there's no directive, as I understand it, that once the test is concluded, the DNA is destroyed or or any other thing. So what is the... Uh, it's a great question, uh, Bill. So w- what's the story, Kyla? 
Well, the, unfortunately, the answer is we don't know. We don't know what the police are going to do with it and what use they're going to make of it. We don't know what rules are going to be placed around their storage and keeping of it, whether they need to keep the test results as an exhibit for trial or whether they should destroy it to protect your privacy. Yeah. These are things that are going to have to be sorted out by the courts. Interesting stuff. Now, uh, Bill's second question, I suspect, will be a little easier for you to end, a little more positive in terms of uh, a definitive answer. Uh, if you refuse to take that saliva test at the roadside, that strikes me as being the equivalent of refusing to blow for suspected alcohol impairment. And what are the consequences of refusal, Kyla? A criminal charge and potential penalties of a minimum $1,000 fine and one-year driving prohibition. So if Bill gets pulled over and they say, we're going to swab your face and all that kind of stuff, uh, he can't refuse, basically, can he? He cannot, unless he'd like to fight that refusal out in court. Does Bill at least have a chance to call you? Can he, on his cell phone at the side of the road, go, okay, just a second here. I'm going to call my lawyer before I I, I, uh, acquiesce to any of your requests. Under the present state of the law, your right to counsel is suspended while the testing process is being conducted. That's something that is going to be visited by the courts in the challenges to the use of the roadside testing because of the amount of time and the invasiveness of the search. But as of right now, he does not have the right to contact a lawyer, myself or anyone else. Okay. Is that, uh, it's not great news for you, Bill, but at least uh, we've answered both your questions, hopefully. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You You're welcome. Uh, To Surrey, Catherine, thank you for waiting. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Hey, I was wondering if landlords can be held responsible legally in any way if they rent out their building to a shop that hasn't been licensed yet. Oh, really good question. What do you know about that, Kyla? Again, this is a lot. There's a lot. This is this is uh, the shops that are operating are in the proverbial gray area, and uh, that's what Catherine's uh, possible tenant might be as well. What's the story? Well, I mean, under the criminal law, in theory, landlords could be held responsible because they if they know that the uh, people are operating a cannabis shop that's not lawful and, and charges are ultimately brought, they could be uh, held responsible as aiding and abetting mm. those operations. It's not likely that that would happen. And um, more likely what you'd see is, is fines going to the, um, to the business owners or the property owners to ensure that they're in compliance with the rules. But yes, landlords do have some exposure when it comes to renting space to these shops. Does that help, Catherine? Well, it does, but I just wonder if they have put any law in place um, saying that landlords aren't to rent out to the shops that aren't licensed. Probably not, eh, Kyla? Yeah, there's no specific law that I'm aware of that says that landlords aren't to do that. But if you know that somebody is going to be committing what is effectively a criminal offense, regardless of how it's treated, um, and you allow them the space to do that and you take their money for the privilege of letting them do that there, you expose yourself to some criminal liability as well. Let's uh, let's pursue Catherine's. And thank you for the call, Catherine. 604-280-9898 if you want to jump in here with Kyla Lee and me. Uh, let's, let's talk about another kind of landlord issue, Kyla, and that's the tenant in your basement apartment or whatever property you happen to own who happens to be a cannabis consumer. Uh, and especially if you're in a, in a building or in some kind of strata environment, uh, this person now is going to be 
probably rubbing up in negative ways against some of his or her neighbors. What And, and of course, none of this is, is written. We don't have law on all of this yet. But how do you suspect this is going to shake out? Because we know it's inevitable. Yes. For stratas and, and condo buildings and apartment buildings, the government has left it up to the individual building or property management company or strata to regulate whether or not people can use cannabis um, in their units. So lots of strata companies in the Lower Mainland have put an absolute ban on smoking or vaping because it can interfere with other users. Some stratas uh, have put in rules about how you can use it, like smoke it on your deck only mm-hmm. or make sure, you know, tuck a towel under your door so the vapor doesn't affect anyone else in the building. But it is up to the essentially the property owners and the strata council to make those rules for individual properties. Interesting. You were in Alberta last time. We talked a few weeks ago, uh, again, addressing another conversation of uh, fellow criminal defense lawyers. In Alberta, they seem to be a little bit ahead of us in terms of being organized for all of this and the rollout in the first place. And they seem to be moving in some kind of direction with respect to public places where people can consume cannabis. You want to go out for a drink with somebody, that's no problem. It's easy to find a bar. But if you want to go out for a smoke with somebody, so far, at least as I understand it in Metro Vancouver, you can't go in anywhere and do just that. That is true. There is legislation in place in British Columbia that will eventually allow for cannabis sort of smoking and vaping lounges. Um, and perhaps ultimately when edibles become legal, somewhere where you can go and eat cannabis with other people. But at this point in time, no licenses or permits have been granted to those places. So there's nowhere that you can lawfully go to do that. So right. it's coming, but it's going to be through the slow uh, slow processes of government. Well, and we're seeing it, of course, in Colorado, a state that has had legalized cannabis for a couple of years. And just in the past few months, are we seeing in major urban centers like Denver, where these sorts of public cannabis clubs uh, are now starting to be legalized and and you know l- legal language being written for permits and so on so you're quite right this is not I, I, we were probably naive to expect the whole package to be ready on October 17th weren't we I, I mean perhaps we were naive to expect it but we have known that this was coming for over two years and so there's been plenty of time for government to get the systems in place uh, for them to draft legislation for them to have the permit process started and to to be ready to issue all of the permits and licenses on the day of, of legalization and we can see how quickly things have progressed in Alberta how quickly other provinces had their legal stores uh, open mm-hmm. um, it's actually ironic I find that British Columbia which has been really at the forefront of cannabis activism has been so slow when it comes to the legal sphere. Well, it, it, it is kind of surprising. You're absolutely right. And, and I suppose naive was perhaps a stretch, but uh, I think that given the model, especially with Washington State right next door, and they went through the same issue. You were talking, we were talking earlier about supplies and, and an acute lack of supply in a lot of instances. When Washington State first legalized cannabis, Kyla, they did exactly the same thing. They said, here you go. And opened up stores and had absolutely almost nothing to sell. And because there was such a limited supply, it was incredibly overpriced. Uh, And so the combination of limited supply and ridiculous prices just essentially uh, legalized the, uh, 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 the, the local dealer network. And it took the government many months to figure out you can't charge that much and you really need to stock the stores. 
Yes, and we do have some of the higher prices for cannabis in British Columbia than the rest of Canada. Um, I think one of the other troubling things about legalization is the taxes, because they're applying the excise tax to the recreational cannabis, which is fair, Mm -hmm. but they're also applying it now to the medical cannabis. So all of a sudden, the price for medical users, because of legalization, has uh, has increased significantly because they have to pay the excise tax on something they never had to pay tax on and were obtaining lawfully before. Right. Do people uh, who are taking prescription meds, when they pick up their stuff at the pharmacy, do they pay an excise tax on those drugs? No, they don't. There are taxes. So medical marijuana users are being singled out in a peculiar way then. They are, and there is a talk of a class action being launched about this, um, where the medical marijuana users who've had to pay the excise tax are seeking to get that money back from the government because they are being discriminated against specifically on the basis of what medication they take. Sure. Uh, Kyla, you've, you've indicated that subsequent to legalization here in Vancouver, you and your colleagues at the Acumen Law Group have received some calls, mostly having to do with uh, roadside suspensions and, and tickets with the visible product in the the car, that sort of thing. But uh, clearly, there are also uh, groups of lawyers across Canada who are preparing challenges, constitutional challenges, with respect to some of the rules surrounding cannabis legalization. What do you expect to be the first big challenge that's likely to go all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada? I think the first big challenge is going to be one focusing on access and cost for medical users, because those are the people that have been immediately affected by this. I don't think that we're going to see challenges to advertising restrictions and to the impaired driving laws and to the sort of distribution and traffic laws happening as quickly, because the police are aware that these these challenges are coming. They're aware that there are lawyers like myself who are ready to file them if we get the case. Sure. And they're very smartly making the decision to selectively enforce uh, the provisions in ways that uh, makes it difficult to constitutionally challenge them. And, 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 and you're okay with that for the time being because this is all just so darn new, right? I am okay with it. I'm also okay with it because if the police are viewing this as being a constitutional problem, and we even saw, I think, last week uh, comments from a former high-ranking RCMP officer about how bad the drug recognition evaluation program is, if the police are, are stopping and thinking about the constitutionality of what they're doing and the science behind what they're doing and making the decision not to enforce a law or to selectively enforce a law because of their views about that, that's what we want to see as a public. We want to see the police informed and considering our charter rights and not just blindly following a law that the government says, trust us, it's good. Right, and and therefore creating even more uh, possible uh, uh, jams in the legal system because, of course, it, it does. You have this feeling of inevitability about it, Kylie. It's just sort of sooner or later, the, the log jam's going to burst and there's going to be just a whole whack of cases come thundering through the courts. And the fewer, the better, really, you would have to say, wouldn't yeah. you? Oh, yeah, we already have a, a huge problem with court delays in this country. Adding, you know, a dozen constitutional challenges to various aspects of, of laws that have come into place after cannabis legalization is only going to tie up the courts more. 
judges obviously are going to have to hear those cases, and they're important enough that they're going to be need, need to be prioritized, which means that, you know, the crimes that we've been seeing for a long time, like assault and theft and even murder cases, are going to fall by the wayside, get dropped because of the delay rules. Uh, it, 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 from a public policy perspective, it's not good to enforce laws that are inevitably going to be challenged. Interesting stuff. God, I have to leave it there. I thank you for your time this afternoon. Very kind of you to give us an hour out of a, a weekend in San Francisco. My gosh, that's quite generous of you. Hopefully next time we have this conversation, you'll be uh, able to pop into the studio and we'll have a bit of a visit as well. I hope so. Acumen Law Corporation is the, the name of uh, Kyla Lee's company, easily found on the internet. Uh, we'll take a quick break here and come back with lots more. And once again, our thanks to Kyla Lee from Vancouver's Acumen Law Group for another helpful visit. And thanks for your calls, too. You want to get a hold of her, you can find her at Acumen Law, A-C-U-M-E-N, Acumen Law, one word, dot C-A. In our next hour, John Carlson returns with a fresh Metro Vancouver real estate update and more on the 1% real story. Time now for Duly Noted, and this time around, our producer Ben Dooley has a look at a new child care pilot program here in BC. Thanks, Sterling. The BC government is launching 53 prototype projects around BC to provide child care that will cost families a maximum of $200 per month per child. The prototypes are being funded through $60 million from the Early Learning and Child Care Agreement with the Government of Canada. One of the first prototype sites will be the Frog Hollow Daycare in Vancouver. Parent Erin Frizzle is relieved that the financial support is on the way. It means moving beyond surviving and into thriving. It's really life-changing. Parents of about 2,500 children will benefit from the prototype projects. The program is part of the overall child care strategy that the provincial government launched following taking power in July 2017. The prototype sites will operate until March 31, 2020. 43 child care sites in B.C. started operating on November 1st, with a further 10 slated to start on December 1st. More than 300 B.C. child care operators applied to participate in the Universal Prototype Initiative. I'm Ben Dooley, and that's Dooley Noted. Thanks, Ben. Time for a couple more consumer quickies before the news. A new report by Zucasa shows most buyers in British Columbia don't earn enough to afford the average home. And 16 out of 20 markets studied in the province were deemed to be, well, unaffordable. Zucasa's managing editor says the five least affordable markets are all located in Greater Vancouver. Obviously, the city of Vancouver, the least affordable. There, there was an income gap of almost 100000 bucks. The report also finds the average home in the Vancouver area cost just over $1.2 million. Also at the top of the list of least affordable cities, Richmond, Burnaby, North Van, and Coquitlam. But Zucasa says further north, the situation is reversed. Prince George is actually the most affordable market. Homes there average just $300,000. Imagine. And residents earn an average seventy eight grand a year. The other most affordable cities in our province? Kamloops, Penticton, Langford, and Campbell River. And fans of jolly old St. Nick will be very pleased to hear the Vancouver Santa Claus Parade is all set to roll out Sunday, December 2nd, starting at Georgia and Broughton, down Georgia to the Art Gallery, and on to Howe Street, down to Davie. Volunteers will be collecting non-perishable food items and monetary donations on behalf of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank Society. The parade is one of the largest food and fundraising events for both the Food Bank Society and the CKNW Kids Fund. Joining TELUS as key sponsors this year, Global BC, Toys R Us, and the Fairmont Hotel 
Vancouver. Uh, circle that date. Bring the kids. Sunday, December 2nd, downtown. The Santa Claus Parade. That is our first hour of Vancouver Consumer. We'll break for the news to three and return with John Carlson from 1% Realty. Stay with us. You're on CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.